morning's scripture is taken from Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 12. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee? The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women, because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. Thank you, Nicole. <clears throat> Nicole, for those of you who may not know, is our preschool director. We've got a great preschool that runs Monday through Friday. There are almost 120 children that attend on a weekly basis, so we're thrilled with the leadership that Nicole has given to that ministry. Well, you guys look cozy. <clears throat> when I came, when I arrived this morning, Bob Teske said to me, he says, they heard you were preaching, so they put out extra chairs. <laughs> I think he was kidding. I know he was kidding. Well, what a day. What a day to, to gather together. And I just loved uh, just hearing the voices united this morning and singing praise to God and celebrating the resurrection and the power of the resurrection and what it means to us. And one of the things that uh, I prayed for this morning as we gathered was that maybe there would just be a, a line in a song or something that is said this morning that would find uh, its roots deep in our hearts. And um, for me, that happened. I don't know about you yet, but uh, hopefully it will. But I felt like God just answered that prayer, at least for me. And it was when we were singing the very last uh, hymn there, In Christ Alone, the line, No guilt in life and no fear in death. I mean, just think about those two words. No guilt in life. That you can live a guilt-free life knowing that your sins are forgiven because of what Christ did on the cross. And that you don't need to fear death because of the promise of eternal life. It's powerful. No guilt in life. No fear in death. On Good Friday, we asked the question, were you there? And the question then was answered by many who were present on the day that Jesus was crucified. There were some of his disciples, his mother Mary, those who were involved in his trial, and then those who even carried out the actual crucifixion. Uh, the, the Bible records these historic, world-changing, life-changing events. Jesus Christ died. That is a fact. He was the perfect once and for all sacrifice. The Son of God had become the Lamb of God, sacrificed to pay the penalty for our sin. And His death on the cross made the forgiveness of sin possible. But you know that the story doesn't end with His death. The cross wasn't the end. The empty tomb was. 
Jesus rose from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus is recorded in all four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all cover this event in the life of Jesus. And they all include the main elements. Of course, the empty tomb, the women who first discovered the empty tomb, the angel that explained what had happened, and their reluctance to believe. But they also include various details that the other Gospels don't. And so when you read all four of them side by side, you you pick up little insights into uh, some of the details of what was going on. But what I'd like to do this morning is just walk through Luke's account of the resurrection, the one that Nicole read for us just a moment ago. Make some comments as we walk our way through there and just explain a little bit about what is happening and then summarize a few implications for us today. So I invite you, if you have a Bible, to turn to Luke chapter 24. We're going to look at these first 12 verses. And first I want to look at the empty tomb. So Luke chapter 24 begins with just this phrase, on the first day of the week. And I want to pause and just make a comment about that because it was in essence, we heard so much about Jesus being raised again on the third day and suddenly now it's on the first day of the week. It was the beginning of something new. It's no wonder that this first day of the week has become the day of Christian worship. And while Easter Sunday is this annual celebration of the resurrection of Jesus, the fact is, is that every Sunday when we gather is a celebration of the resurrection. Christians around the world gather on the first day of the week to worship God for who he is and for what he has done. And he's made forgiveness and salvation possible. Friends, that's A pretty good reason to get out of the bed and to gather with other believers and to worship him. There's so much evidence for the resurrection of Jesus, and this is just one of them. The explosion of the church. Read about it in the book of Acts. People coming to faith in Jesus, gathering then to worship together, to study the Bible, and then how they lived showed the strength of the disciples' convictions about what had happened on that resurrection day. Think about it for a moment. If they weren't absolutely convinced of the truth of the resurrection, would they have responded and lived their lives in the way that they did? And so on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, and from Mark's gospel, we learn that the women had bought and prepared the spices when the Sabbath was over or after sundown on Saturday. So once the sun set, the Sabbath was over. The Jews had, had, had remembered the, the Sabbath on the Saturday. And now the shops could open. And so the ladies went and, and uh, gathered some spices so that they could complete the burial rites that were left undone. And then the next morning, at the crack of dawn, the women head out to the tomb. Obviously, they fully expected to find the body of Jesus in the tomb. In fact, one of their concerns was how they would even get into the tomb. Mark records them talking on the way to the tomb that morning, asking each other the obvious question, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? This would have been a large and heavy stone. It it would not have been easy for them to move it. But when they actually get to the tomb, they find that the stone had already been rolled away. And this, in fact, was the first sign then that something unusual and something significant was going on. 
Now the women, they show no signs of hesitation whatsoever, and they enter right into the tomb. And Luke almost matter-of-factly writes, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. They didn't find it. Jesus was gone. You can imagine when they, you come into a scene fully expecting there to be something, and then that something is not there. They were at a total loss. What happened here? The stone's been rolled away. The tomb is empty. What now? I mean, I can only imagine the complete look of disbelief, total shock, just standing there, jaws wide open, staring at each other, looking at the place where they had fully expected to find the body of Jesus and being completely and totally speechless. Luke goes on to say, well, while they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. I mean, can you imagine this now? I mean, if it wasn't just overwhelming and unusual enough, the stones moved away, there is no body that they expected, and now there's these two men that later are described as angels. And so often we read some of these details as almost as matter-of-factly as Luke writes them, but even though it's short and clear and it's to the point, it really is an incredible scene. And so now, what is the common response when you read the scriptures that people have when they encounter an angel? Fear. They're just totally freaked out. Understandably so. And it just says, in their fright, the women bowed with their faces to the ground. So out of their fear, out of their respect, they they respond emotionally and physically to the sudden realization that they are in the presence of angels. And the angels then ask them a very simple and straightforward question. Why do you look for the living among the dead? I mean, just think about the question. Why do you look for the living among the dead? The angels were clearly saying that Jesus was alive. The tomb could not hold him. And then they just go on to say, he is not here. He has risen. God has intervened. And now the tomb is empty. So what happened? Well, there seems to be an obvious explanation. There has to be an explanation, and it is an obvious one. As we continue, verses 6 and 7, it just says, Remember how he told you. Remember how he told you. While he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Remember when he said this? Remember this? In other words, the angels are, and there's almost like a little silent rebuke here. You, you should have known that this would happen. Remember what he said? And if you go back into earlier chapters of Luke's gospel, let me just share a few with you. Luke 9.22. These are Jesus' own words much earlier saying things like this, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. And then in the same chapter, verses 43 and 45 to 45, listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you, Jesus says. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. 
But they did not understand what this meant. It was hidden from them, so they did not grasp it. And they were afraid to ask him about it. And then Luke chapter 17, verse 25. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And then in the next chapter, Luke 18, verses 31 through 34. Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, We are going up to Jerusalem. And everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be handed over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. On the third day he will rise again. The disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them. And they did not know what he was talking about. And so here we see Jesus so clearly predicting what, exactly what would happen to him. He knew what God's plan was. But even his closest disciples didn't get it. And then when it did actually happen, they're surprised by it all. And when the angel asked the woman, remember what he said. Like I said, it was almost a little bit of a rebuke there. You should have known. He told you that this was going to happen. But God often says things that we fail to understand because we have trouble accepting them. And sometimes we just don't get it ourselves. I like verse 8. Just simply said, Then they remembered his words. I like that. It was just this aha moment. The, The angels reminded them of what Jesus had said. And then suddenly the women do remember what Jesus had said in the past. And it seems that the angel's explanation of the obvious brought some measure of conviction in their lives. They had heard it before, but since Jesus often spoke using metaphors, they they didn't even consider that what he was saying was intended to be taken literally. And now that these things had actually happened, it all started to make sense to them. And they weren't going to keep this to themselves, and so they run back to where the disciples of Jesus had gathered And they reported these unbelievable events to them. And so they come with this unbelievable report. In verse 10, Luke begins, he actually identifies the women who discovered the empty tomb. He says it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mothers of of James. And then he says, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. When I read these events as they unfold, I can't help but try to imagine and and picture, try to picture what is happening. And can you picture this scene? I mean, these ladies rushing back after what they had just seen, and they're excited, and they're talking over each other, and they're loud, and they're interrupting each other, and they're just so, they, they can't even get the words out probably. And in verse 11, the response of the disciples was, but they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Despite the fact that there were more than three eyewitnesses to the empty tomb, he he identifies three by name, and then he says there's others. And the appearance of these angels, and he's telling them all of this, their story is not believed. The other disciples now are trying to comprehend the reality that the women were trying to communicate. And this report was just simply unbelievable. And it was hard to accept. 
Because it just seemed like, the, the word there, it just seemed like nonsense. It doesn't make sense. Somebody isn't crucified in the way that Jesus was and laid in a tomb with a large stone put over it, and then suddenly, two days later, on the third day, he's gone. But it wasn't just because it seemed like nonsense. It was also likely that it was culturally an unbelievable story from women who themselves in that culture would have been viewed with some suspicion. Now, earlier I said that one piece of evidence of the resurrection of Jesus was the strength of the disciples' convictions about what happened that day and how they carried that on in, uh, in, in the planting and, and starting of the, of the early church. But obviously they went from doubt to skepticism and to deeply held convictions about the resurrection. We're going to see how that happened in just a moment. But if you want some more evidence for the resurrection of Jesus, consider this. The first century church would never have created a story based on the testimony of women. Because it would have been just so easy to dismiss. That was the culture. And initially, even the disciples then dismissed the women's report. It's nonsense. It doesn't add up. We witnessed the horrific crucifixion. We watched him die. We watched as Joseph of Arimathea removed Jesus' dead, limp body from the cross. And the women even followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how the body was laid in it. And now these same women are not believed when they tell the disciples that the tomb was empty and that the angels have said that Jesus was alive. Interesting, isn't it? that the first skeptics were the disciples. Even when women they knew well, women that they would have known to be credible, told them about their encounter with the angels at the empty tomb, they still refused to believe. It's understandable though, isn't it? The crucifixion shocked them. It had shattered all of their hopes and dreams. They didn't see it coming in spite of Jesus plainly telling them that this must happen. And now the resurrection seems to catch the disciples off guard. They can't seem to wrap their minds around the reality that Jesus is alive again. And so clearly, irrefutable evidence was needed to convince the skeptics. And so Peter runs off to personally investigate. Peter needs to check out the empty tomb for himself. Now, to some degree, he, he knows better than to doubt. His own personal experience should have taught him that. Remember when the Lord predicted Peter's denials? But Peter still needs to see it firsthand. And so when he gets to the tomb, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves. In other words, he, he just saw the linen cloth that Jesus' body had been wrapped in but there was no body. And if this had been a crime scene, the area around the tomb would have been taped off. Pictures would have been taken. Pictures of the stone that was rolled off to the side. Maybe fingerprints on the, on the, uh, on the stone to, to examine. Maybe who pushed this out of the way? Who stole Jesus' body? Picture of the linens laying by themselves. And all of these things would have been entered into evidence because it was silent but powerful testimony that Jesus Christ had been raised to life. And Peter's personal investigation confirmed the women's report. And yet, 
we read that he went away wondering to himself what had happened. And I wonder if there was still a little bit of doubt. What really happened here? And the empty tomb raises these initial questions. I mean, something is going on. Clearly something significant has happened. And Peter begins to ponder what that might mean. And eventually he later sees Jesus alive for himself. And that finally and completely convinces him. And the testimony of the Bible is that more than 500 people saw Jesus alive after he had died. Think about that. That's about as many people here. If we wanted to put up an elaborate hoax, how long would it take for one of us, just one of us, to break and come clean with the truth? But the scriptures clearly say that 500 people saw Jesus alive and they believed that even to their own graves. And so it is true. He died for our sins but was raised to life. And as a result, he conquered death and is able to offer us forgiveness of our sins and eternal life. He paid the price. He paid the ransom to redeem us and to set us free. The resurrection proves, in fact, that Jesus was the Son of God, just as he said that he was. And so you might be thinking again this morning, of course, it's Easter Sunday. Why wouldn't we talk about the resurrection? So what? But there are implications of the resurrections. There's many of them, and I want to just share three with you this morning. Because like Peter, you may find yourself wondering about what happened on that day and what does it really mean and what personal implications does the resurrection have for us. So number one, I want to just say this. I think skepticism is normal. Uh, We just saw how Peter and the other disciples had their doubts about the resurrection. In spite of having been personally told by Jesus that these things must happen. And even when they did happen, they didn't believe right away. The disciples were usually open to miracles. They had seen many. But now they were surprised and shocked and had to be persuaded. They didn't initially accept the women's testimony. They needed personal confirmation. They had to overcome a strong sense of doubt. The resurrection is essential. But the disciples did not come to believe it easily. They had to be convinced. Listen to these words from the Apostle Paul. He wrote to, in his first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 15, 15, verses 1 to 8. He says, Let me remind you, dear brothers and sisters, of the good news I preached to you before. You welcomed it then, and you still stand firm in it. It is this good news that saves you if you continue to believe the message I told you. Unless, of course, you believe something that was never true in the first place. I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins, just as the Scriptures said, He was buried, and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scriptures said. He was seen by Peter and then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, 
most of them, most of whom are still alive. In other words, go ask them if you need to, though some have died. Then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles. Last of all, he says about himself, as though I had been born at the wrong time, I also saw him. The transformation of the Apostle Paul's life is evidence of the resurrection. But then, and even now, I think a certain kind of prove-it attitude exists. And maybe you're here this morning and you are skeptical about the resurrection. And I want to just say to you, you're in good company. But can I encourage you to at least investigate it further? There are so many good books that are written about Jesus and his resurrection. There's all sorts of evidence that, 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 that if you're a, you know, a legal analyst type person that you can read and, and, and it'll probably give you convincing proof of that. One of the best-selling books um, over the last probably 10, 15 years, I can't even remember now exactly when it, when it came out, but it's a book called The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. And I know some of you have read it because I have that book and I've shared it with many of you. There's even now a, a movie in theaters right now based on the true story of Lee's investigation. He was an avowed atheist, but he was an investigative criminal journalist who took it upon himself when his wife came to faith in Christ and he could not understand what that was all about. He just went, well, I've got to disprove the claims of Jesus. And so he used all of his investigative techniques and did the investigation. And then he came to the conclusion of the truth and the reality of the resurrection and the implications that that then has for our lives. And so maybe if you're looking for something to do, go see the movie. I haven't seen it myself. I always hate encouraging that, but I took it on good note from somebody that said it was a good movie, but that uh, Lee Strobel's character is a little hard to, to stomach at times, so maybe be forewarned. So get the book. Do your investigation. Ponder the resurrection. Wonder about the implications. I mean, it is understandably hard to believe. I mean, I'll give you that that Jesus was beaten until he was almost unrecognizable, that he died, but now an empty gate grave proves that he is alive. And if that is true, what he said and what he taught is also true. And that's huge. And so obviously when you do this kind of investigation, I think you will find the evidence so overwhelming and compelling. And my hope and prayer would be that you would come to an understanding of the good news, the gospel, and you would ultimately turn in faith to Jesus. So it's okay to be a skeptic, but you don't want to remain one. Secondly, I think what the resurrection teaches us is that God simply keeps his promises. The resurrection is one of the greatest promises. God's plan had never been derailed. These things must happen. We read that time and time and time again in the scriptures. Scripture predicted these events, and Jesus himself predicted exactly what would happen to him. And God keeps his word, even when it involves things that seem impossible. Simply put, God keeps his promises. God's plan was that Jesus would be betrayed, that he would be crucified, that he would be buried and then raised to life. God's words came to pass and the events unfolded just as God had promised. 
And later when the, Jesus appears to his disciples, after reminding them of what he had earlier told them himself, he says to them in Luke chapter 24 and verse 47, and he says, And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all the nations. And that is the mission of the church, to proclaim the good news of the forgiveness of sins. This was why the church got started. The church has been accused of making up the resurrection. But actually, the the resurrection was never created by the church. The church was created by the resurrection. The church was a result of people coming to faith in believing that Jesus rose from the dead. And so after the crucifixion, and then before the resurrection, the disciples had run uh, scared, and, and they scattered. But then the resurrection, they After the resurrection, they boldly and courageously stick to their convictions because they had learned that God keeps his promises. And Luke 24 emphasizes God's plan and his bringing to pass all of what he has promised. And this was Luke's promise and purpose from the very beginning in writing his gospel. In chapter 1 and verse 4 he wrote, So that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. The Bible makes many promises, and you can be certain of them. These are things that we can be certain of. Jesus is coming back again. There will be a day of judgment. There is eternal life for those who believe in Jesus, and so many more. And that should both maybe unsettle us a little bit and even thrill us, because then we know that God loves us and God forgives us no matter what. And he desires to have a growing, vibrant relationship with us. And so I wonder, do you know him personally today? And the lastly, the third implication, probably an obvious one, and it's just a big, broad, all-encompassing one. The resurrection changes everything. Jesus is alive, and he offers forgiveness so that we can have a new relationship with God. And there are two key words that are used to describe the relationship we can have with Jesus. Jesus is both Savior and He's Lord. We saw this in the video earlier when, they, when He came to the realization that Jesus is Lord. But as Savior, we know that He saves His people from their sins. And the Bible says that all of us have sinned and that we fall short of, of, the, of the goal of the target that God has for us. We've, we've all sinned. And the price for that sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And then Paul says in Romans 5, 8, he says, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so how do we respond to that truth? Romans 10, 8, simply this, that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God is raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Personal faith in Jesus Christ, personal faith in the resurrection of Christ is necessary because it becomes a vital element in a faith that leads to salvation. That is our hope. But he's Savior and Lord. And as Lord of our lives, he has authority. It's his will, not my will. It's his rules, not mine. I will obey him. I will follow him because he is Lord. And so let me just draw this to a close by 
trying to speak to those of you who know Jesus as your Savior and Lord. And if that is true of you today, rejoice, celebrate, sing out with all of the enthusiasm that you can muster this morning because we ought to live in gratitude and thanksgiving of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the power that that offers us. Pursue a vital relationship with Jesus because the resurrection of Jesus gives us ultimately the same power then to live the Christian life. And it's all about transforming us and changing us so that we become more like Jesus. We never become like little Jesuses, but we become more like him. That is the purpose of our lives, that we become more like Christ. And so then we know that he is worthy of all of our praise. But if you don't know him this morning, consider what the resurrection means. Because quite simply, then everything that Jesus said is true. And so when he said, I am the way and the truth, And the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. He was speaking truth. And if you don't know God personally today, know that he loves you and he desires to have a relationship with you. And Jesus' death and resurrection makes that relationship possible. So turn to him. Confess with your mouth. Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. Friends, that is the hope of the resurrection that we celebrate this morning. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks that on this annual celebration of this historic event, we also are reminded this morning that on the first day of each week, we have the privilege of gathering and remembering and celebrating the resurrection of Jesus and all that that means. And I think back, Lord, even one of the songs we sang that really told the whole story, the fullness of God and a helpless babe. So we go back to Christmas and we think about what that's all about and we remember how the angel appeared to Joseph and said, you're to call him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. So, Lord, this weekend we have, again, just relived and remembered how that's all possible and how that happened through the death and resurrection of Jesus, who is both Savior and Lord. Jesus, what a beautiful name. And it's in that name that we pray.